lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, in today's show, I'm sharing my conversation about incorporating edibles into your landscape with Bree Arthur. She's the writer behind a book that I think every gardener should get a copy of, and it's called The Foodscape Revolution. Have you been wanting to add edibles to your garden but feel you simply don't have the space? Do you want a natural way to minimize pest problems with greater biodiversity in your landscape? Over the years, I've naturally gravitated toward adding edibles in my own landscape, first with herbs, then with cold crops, and finally with some of our favorite vegetables. I have many dear friends who love to come and harvest from my garden, and they're welcome to, but they often dismiss having a garden of their own due to, quote, not having the perfect spot. But what if having the perfect spot is just an excuse? And what if the best way to add edibles means leveraging what is right in front of your eyes? You just need a new perspective to see that a cutting-edge garden is available to virtually everyone. This is Bree's vision, a foodscape revolution, and I think it's the future. That's the topic of today's show, and it's all coming up after the Garden News Roundup. But first, I'd like to start out by saying thank you for spending some time with me this week. I know you have a lot of different options for podcasts out there, and I'm sincerely honored that you're spending some time here with me listening to the Still Growing Podcast. And if you're looking for a deeper interaction on the subject of gardening, I'd love to connect with you in the Still Growing community. It's a private Facebook group that I host for gardeners of all skill levels and locations. In fact, there are gardeners from all around the globe in our Facebook group. And what I love about it is it's not overwhelmingly large. And also, it's a nice little group for listeners of the show who share a passion for gardening and have a curiosity to learn more. We geek out on gardening in this group. Plus, it's free and it's easy to join. So come hang out with us. Don't be shy. Even if you've been listening for a long time and you've never joined the Still Growing community, it's really very easy to be part of the group. All you have to do is the next time you're in Facebook, just search for Still Growing Podcast Group and then request to join. Or here's another way. If Facebook's a little confusing for you, there's too many options. You can go to my website, sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And right in the main menu is a link to the Facebook group. So just click on that, request to join, and we'll admit you into the group. And if you're listening to this episode and you like what you hear, you should definitely join the group. Not only are there great giveaways for listeners, like today's guest, Bree, is going to be giving away a copy of her book, and the only place I'm going to go to pick a winner is going to be the Facebook group. But in addition to that, 
I'm planning some fun activities for listeners of the show, and they're all designed with you in mind to help you and your garden grow. So stay tuned for that. You know, when I created the Facebook group for the listener community, I always imagined that it would be a place for listeners of the show and guests of the show to interact with one another. And that's exactly what's happening. In fact, past guest of the show, Pam Pennick, she's the author of The Water-Saving Garden, shared a great link. It's to a post she had just written about a glass art and cacti nursery known as Living Desert Ranch in Spicewood, Texas. It's just 30 miles northwest of Austin where Pam lives and gardens. And this is exactly what I hoped would happen, that guests of the show would come on, share their time and expertise with us, and then continue to help us grow and learn by posting in the group. So that's tremendous access to these gardening experts. And I think that adds an element of excitement and passion that is hard to find online, especially in Facebook groups. Now, before I forget, I want to welcome some of the new members that have joined our group within the last couple of weeks, Julie Hyatt, Kathy Hodgkins, McCole Brooks, Jenny Zimler, Raven Haroldson, Jameson Mooseman, Gina Maria Caslick-Selly, Will Johnson, Will works at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, that sounds like a great place to work, I love Williamsburg. Marissa Hoy, Tom and Trisha Ireland, Penny Hebbard, Deaver's Farm, Luis Dugas, and Rochelle Blank Zemmer. Welcome, you guys. You know, the Facebook group is also the only place that I go to put together my listener advisory board. This is a quarterly opportunity to work with me, to let me pick your brain and hear your suggestions and advice for the show, because it's important to me to stay very listener directed. So right out of the gate, I had six volunteers when I shared this in January, and these lovely ladies have been super helpful. They've had a ton of great ideas, and they've put me in touch with a lot of wonderful resources in the gardening community. In fact, Peggy Ann Montgomery of American Beauty's Native Plants put me in touch with today's guest, Bree Arthur. So thanks to Peggy Ann, Bree is on the show. So that's a cool result of the listener advisory board that I didn't anticipate, and I absolutely love it. These guys have been super great, and they are Beth Engel, Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi, and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine, Amy Von Atchen, Patricia Chandler Newport. She's the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens, and she is based out of Kego Harbor, Michigan. Deb Gibson, and of course, Peggy Ann Montgomery. She's the brand manager at American Beauty's Native Plants. She was also a guest on the show back in episode 553, where we talked all about native plants and how you can incorporate them into your landscape this summer. All right, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. These are just a handful of the curated posts that I've collected over the past week, and they've all been shared in the free Facebook group. So if you hear something and you want to read the full article, just head on over to the group. No need to take notes. In the guest update segment this week, Jenny Prince of American Meadows wanted to make sure I shared a couple of things with you. And of course, Jenny was just on the show back in episode 566, and we were talking all about 
getting help in your garden this year by leveraging student workers, getting kids in the garden, and having it be effective. So that's a great conversation. If you're needing help, give that a listen. But also, don't forget that there are only about three days left for you to enter the American Meadows and High Country Gardens contest. Those two organizations are celebrating their love of plants by giving away a life-changing trip for two to one of our nation's botanic gardens. So you get to pick the botanic garden and they'll supply the plane tickets for you and a lucky friend. You get a four-night hotel stay and spending money for food and extras. So this contest is wrapping up at the end of April, April 30th. There's only a few days to enter by the time this show is released. So head on over to BotanicGardenGetaway.com. Make sure you enter to win. And then as a result of having Jenny on the show, she was able to get listeners of Still Growing a great deal. So you can get $10 off any order of $40 or more just by using the coupon code STILLGROWING17. And you can use that code anytime between now and the end of May. So it expires on May 31st. So check both of those offers out this week when you get a chance. In sustainability this week, there was a fascinating article shared by Inhabitat.com. It showed plans that are being built right now in Shanghai. They're planning a massive 100-hectare vertical farm to feed 24 million people. This is a very impressive endeavor, and you've got to see the pictures. This is one I'm going to be following closely. I think it's quite fascinating. In the continuing Ed segment this week, were two articles that will help gardeners in the kitchen. The first was from foodnetwork.com. They were sharing pro-chef tricks that home cooks can master. And what was great about these tricks is that they were from Iron Chef Gauntlet competitors. So they offered seven great tips here. One of them was about turning herbs into herb oils. That was a great tip. I do that. I know Joel Karsten does that. We were talking about that after one of our interviews. So it's a common method to preserve herbs using some type of oil. And that was just validated by this article. And then there was another great article featured in Pop Sugar. This was posted back in the beginning of April, and it was talking about the fastest way to soften avocados. And of course, here we're going to leverage the power of apples and bananas because they emit a ripening agent called ethylene gas. So if you have an avocado and you want to speed up that ripening process, put it in a bag with a banana. That one wasn't surprising, but hey, it doesn't work if you don't remember to do it. Anyway, that article has been shared in the Facebook group. And this might be a good one to use that Facebook save feature on. I love using that feature. So whenever I want to tuck something away, I just look at the post, head on up to the top right-hand corner, click the arrow down, and then just click save post. And Facebook will put all of those things in a saved file for you. And then you can scroll through those whenever you want. Just look over on your left-hand side and there will be a file called saved, and that's where all your saved items go. 
In the how-to segment this week, Organic Life shared great tips on how to grow basil. They call it the ultimate garden herb. And of course, I agree with that. I love growing basil. We can never have enough basil. And I think Bree and I actually talk about that as we're talking about one of her favorite techniques for growing edibles. I'm not going to spoil it here, but you'll hear it in the interview. And then last but not least, 31 Daily had a really nice post on how to start a kitchen garden for beginners. So if you're wanting to do that this year, this is a great overview. In the plant spotlight this week, I wanted to give you something that was going to be tied to what today's conversation was going to be about. And one of the things that Bree and I spend a great deal of time talking about is growing rice, growing grains in the garden. And Mother Earth News wrote about this. In fact, they featured a book by Sarah Pitzer. It was published by Story back in 2009, and it's called Homegrown Whole Grains. It says, grow, harvest, and cook wheat, barley, oats, rice, corn, and more. Okay, in fact, I just looked it up. And you can get it for a little over six bucks right now in the new and used offers on Amazon. You can get it brand new in paperback for 11 or there's a Kindle edition for $9.99. So this one won't set you back very far and it looks to be a great resource. Anyway, I shared an article from Mother Earth News that kind of was featuring this chapter eight that's all about rice because it's something that Bree and I talk a lot about in today's show. So you'll love this particular article, but if you want to go ahead and buy the book, there's a lot of them available on Amazon, or I should say, at least there's a lot of them available right now. Maybe after this show, there won't be so many, but definitely head on over and check it out. I think it'll be a good one for you to invest in. In fact, I'm going to click buy right now and order my copy. I can get it for $6.23. It says it's in good condition that's good enough for me. And I love buying used books because there's a sentimental aspect to buying a used book. You get to see what other people thought was interesting in that story. And I like that. Okay, in the news segment this week were a couple of stories. The first was cut back on these seven outdoor trends buyers hate. This was in Realtor.com. And this article is talking about all of the things that diehard gardeners can do that can really turn off prospective buyers. So if you're someone who's got a huge garden and you have some concerns about how that's going to impact your ability to sell your property, you're going to want to check this article out. And then finally in the news, there was this fancy Brooklyn condo that's offering as one of its features a rooftop farmland. I loved this article and I love the rooftop that they're featuring. It's pretty glorious. I would live there. The rooftop garden would be the selling feature for me. Okay, in the dream guest segment this week was an article by Kelly Richman Abdow. I think that's how she says her last name. Anyway, this was featured on My Modern Met. And it's highlighting the work of Vancouver-based artist Bobby Burgers. She paints beautiful blooms that appear to animatedly burst. And her floral paintings are quite large. And they're very, very colorful. Her paintings are almost entirely abstracted. And one of the signature elements of her work are these colossal flowers that overflow with energy. So she has these large-scale depictions, 
like we're talking really large, like seven foot flowers. And if you're interested, you can see her work on her Instagram, which is available in the article. They give you a link to it. But I think she would be a fascinating guest to speak with. All right. In science this week, Rodale's Organic Life had a great post back in the beginning of April, and it was called 14 Natural Ways to Control Garden Pests. And I'm all about the natural ways. And I know that today's guest, Bree, is as well. In fact, we had a little conversation about this. And it's one of the points that Bree offers as a benefit to incorporating edibles into your landscape because that biodiversity deters pests. And there's a reason why that happens. And she's going to talk about it. But now I've planted that seed in your brain. And so when you hear it, you'll go, oh, there you go. Biodiversity. Minimize pest problems. There you go. All right. In shopping this week, I want to draw your attention to something that's available at Target. I got it last year. In fact, I got three pair last year. And I know that they're still available and they are so affordable. They're $34.99. And I'm talking about the Smith & Hawken Gray Wellies that are available. In fact, right now at Target, if you go on their website and spend 20 bucks, you save five with the code GARDEN. Can you believe that? So go get your wellies. You'll end up getting them for 30 bucks. I had to get a number of pairs because, listen, I started out as a size 10 before I had kids, and then my feet grew, and now I'm a size 11, which I'm not really thrilled about, and it can be really hard to find wellies that fit nice. These are fantastic. I love them, love them, love them, and I love the gray color. They're very sophisticated considering they're wellies. I like them. I feel like I can go out in public in them, and so I keep a pair in the garage, on the deck, and on the front porch. So no matter what door I head out of, there are my wellies and I can just jump in my wellies and go do my stuff outside. So go check those out. They're great. And they have other wellies available as well. So if you don't like these and you want to look for something a little more colorful, you can. But if you're looking for something really simple and I think they're very nice looking. And of course, they have the adorable Smith & Hawken logo right on the front of the calf. So absolutely, go check out those wellies. I think you're going to love them. Okay, finally, in the inspiration segment were a number of posts that I found particularly inspiring this week. The first was shared on housebeautiful.com. And this is something I had not heard of. But the title is, Flower boats are the most beautiful wedding trend on Instagram right now. So apparently people are getting married and then they head on over and they jump in this cute little boat and the boat's covered in flowers and it makes for a gorgeous picture. So a lot of these have really cute captions as well where the caption is like sailing off toward their happily ever after and then lots of dreamy captions. But what they do is they put a big floral bouquet on the front of the boat and it tied together with the bride's bouquet. There's a boat that's literally bordered with flowers and garlands and it's just gorgeous. There's a bride that's got a crown of flowers in her hair that matches the flowers that are on this boat. And it's just so stinking cute. So I thought that was very inspirational. Then mentalfloss.com showed these pictures from a massive flower garden in the Dubai desert. This one you have to see to believe. In fact, 
It starts out by showing a house, a little cottage that is so covered in flowers, like from the top of the roof all the way to the front door. It's unreal. Beautiful flower garden. They even show an airplane, like a full-on Airbus, an A380 that's 230 feet long, and it includes more than 500,000 fresh flowers. It's crazy. This was a fun post to read. Very inspirational. And then finally, Gardenista. We can always count on Gardenista. They had a post in the middle of April where they featured, get this, an Irish cottage garden. Who can resist? It's beautiful, right down to the little teal door and the slate roof. It's just yummy. All right, so there you go. That's the Garden News Roundup for this week. No need to take notes. It's all in the Facebook group. I would love to meet you there. Head on over request to join. The next time you're in Facebook, just look up Still Growing Podcast Group. Make sure you're looking at the group. I also have a business page that's called the Still Growing Podcast. So if you're liking the page, if you're hitting like, you're just liking the page. You want to look for the group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. You've got a request to join. And a really easy way to get to that is to not even get to it on Facebook. Just head on over to my website, over at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And right in the top menu, I've put the Facebook group. So you can just click on that link, head on over to the group, request to join, and we'll admit you into the group. You'll have access to all of the news articles that I curate throughout the week, the great conversation between listeners and guests, and you just might be picked to win a copy of Brie Arthur's book, The Foodscape Revolution. So how's that for incentive? Oh, and it's completely free. So there you go. Well, are you on the verge of incorporating edibles into your landscape this year? Have you already done so? And maybe you're questioning your method. Or maybe you're like some of my friends, where you think you just don't have the space. I think today's conversation with Brie Arthur just might change your mind. And I really like her new book. It's called The Foodscape Revolution. It's got a beautiful cover on it. We're going to talk about that. And it's a square book, which to me always says end table. So that's a bonus. In any case, there are a lot of wonderful things that Brie incorporated into this book. In fact, she spent almost the last decade refining her process, her thoughts on growing edibles. And there's an awful lot to like and to glean from the wisdom that Brie has accumulated over the years. And I snuck a hidden message into the introduction that I shared at the very top of the show. And it's right after I asked the question, what if the best way to add edibles means leveraging what is right in front of your eyes. Here it comes. You just need a new perspective to see that a cutting-edge garden is available to virtually everyone. And one of the key points that you're going to hear over and over again from Bree, and I think it's brilliant, is maximizing the edges of your garden. In fact, after chatting with Bree, my mind can't keep up with all the ways I want to leverage the edges of my garden now for edibles. So this is just part of Bree's vision 
for a foodscape revolution. In fact, early in our conversation, we talk about what the world would look like if landscapers would incorporate edibles into their plans and then offer maintenance to homeowners as a result. And I think that's the direction we're heading. I think people want to grow their own food. I think there are a lot of world pressures that are going to create this demand. I think it's already started. So I'm super excited to share this conversation with Bree today, with you. We talked about a lot of things, and there's lots of great ideas here that Bree is sharing with us. So this is an episode where you might want to have a notebook handy just to write down some of Bree's ideas or even capture some of your own things that come to your mind as you're listening to Bree's suggestions. So grab your garden notebook and a pen and enjoy the wisdom from Bree Arthur, the author of The Foodscape Revolution. Well, hi there, Bree. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Well, let's do a quick meet and greet and then we'll dive into the book. Fantastic. Well, I live in uh, central North Carolina in the southernmost suburb of Raleigh, and I'm right on the border of USDA Zone 7-8. But I grew up in southeastern Michigan, Zone 5. So I always say I moved to North Carolina, not for politics, but for climate. (laughs) And it's been a treasure to grow here in North Carolina. I've actually been here 15 years. So I really feel like Zone 7 is my climate where I can kind of call myself an expert. But having grown up in Michigan and then I went to to college at Purdue, which is also Zone 5, most of my formal education was in, you know, more cold, hardy perennials, flowering shrubs, uh, conifers, many of which don't live here. So I always tell people we live in in an area that has a lot of northern transplants. You have to throw all of your knowledge away and start fresh when you move to the South because everything is different. Everything is different. Well, that is the perfect segue to talking about your book because your book, The Foodscape Revolution, is really asking for things to be different, finding a better way to make space for food and beauty in the garden. In fact, that's the tagline for your book. So, Brie, what are some examples of the better way, of this approach that you recommend for incorporating edibles into the landscape? Well, foodscaping is all about incorporating food crops in the existing landscape that you already have. So, it's really all about making the most of the square footage that you're already cultivating with all of your favorite ornamental plants. And the best way to describe it is to look at the open malt space and envision how you could grow a salad from that space or how you could have turnips for your, uh, you know, spring feast at Easter. And using these areas that you already, you know, are already probably fighting weeds in for something that you can have a yard-to-table experience. So nearly every food crop has an application in the landscape. And it's really choosing the food that you like to eat the most and squeezing it into every little area that you have. I like that. And it makes it very doable for people. And yet I know that there are folks out there right now going, now, how am I going to do that again? So what I'd like to do is 
have you go to the introduction of your book where you give a definition of foodscaping that I think is very helpful. And I'd like to have you read that aloud for us. And then let's talk about it on the other side. Foodscaping is the logical integration of edibles in a traditional ornamental landscape. In other words, to foodscape is to grow food alongside your flowers within the landscape that already exists. It is a design and growing strategy that makes the most of the square footage in every landscape. I'm not suggesting everyone become a farmer by digging up the front yard. Far from it. Through foodscaping, you can harness the sunny open mulch space that's already in a prime spot and add your favorite edibles like kale, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, lettuce, and carrots. The average suburban foundation landscape, the landscape around the house, offers open space the equivalent of 1,250 square feet or 48 average-sized 4 by 8 raised beds. That's a lot of edible potential. While an urban house on a small lot may offer less planting space, any sunny area can be foodscaped, even if you're living in a townhome or condo with only a deck or a front porch. I love that. You're helping people appreciate what they already have. They just don't know that it's there. It's so true. You know, I've worked in landscape design on and off for 15 years. My degree is in landscape design. And so often people spend large amounts of money for a landscape that looks good, but doesn't really offer them anything other than, you know, general maintenance. They don't even necessarily get flowers from what they put in to have surrounding their house. And I would like to see people make the most of any area that they are paying attention to and see beauty when they get out of their car and walk to their front door. And I, I like to think that foodscaping will open people's eyes to the potential for the common spaces that we're all sort of greenwashed by. I like that. And, you know, the other thing I like about what you're bringing to the table, pardon the pun, for foodscaping is this whole idea that even people who are trained in horticulture don't always get an education around edibles. In fact, at one point in your book, you remarked about going to school for horticulture, but learning only about designing with and planting ornamentals, not about the wide, wide world of edible plants. And so while homeowners struggle with it, I think they assume that people in horticulture just know how to do all of this stuff. And that's not necessarily the case. So I'm curious uh, for you with your own journey into edibles, how did you make up for a lack of formal education in edibles? Because I'm still working on that myself. I'll try a crop and then I'll learn from that experience. But a lot of my experience comes from trial and error or a lot of my knowledge comes that way. Is that how you started out or how have you accumulated all of this knowledge around edibles? I definitely am always the person that's going to find the hardest way <laughs> and fail several times. So part of the motivation for writing this book was to provide people with information so you don't have to go to the school of hard knocks that I've graduated from. <laughs> so you've graduated from uh, Purdue yes. and hard knocks. <laughs> and hard knocks, exactly. Oh. Uh, a lot of trial and error. And particularly because having grown up in Zone 5, where, you know, I learned to grow ornamental crops through 
being an active member of 4-H and, you know, have knowledge from local farmers, but, you know, trying to figure out what a farmer does and then apply that to a residential landscape, you know, there there's a lot of changes that, that have to be done to be able to take that agronomic aspect and apply it. And I did, uh, early on in my, my journey with foodscaping, connect with a lot of sustainable organic farmers in my region just to figure out what they were sowing, when they were sowing it, what kind of soils they were using, what their fertilizers were based off of, what kind of uh, pest management systems they were utilizing, particularly to be USDA certified organic. And um, I learned a lot from them and then applying it into my home landscape, which, you know, I was growing food more out of necessity than anything those of us that work in horticulture don't necessarily earn a lot. And I wanted to be able to have access to fresh organic produce, but didn't earn enough money to shop at Whole Foods. So I was fortunate to have experience understanding how to grow plants and then taking that ornamental knowledge and applying it to annual food crops uh, was, was a real journey. And I think I would say for sure it's taken me 10 solid years to feel like I actually have it down pat. And I'm okay when crops die, and I don't get super offended by that because I know that a small investment in a seed packet will change my life again. And, you know, learning learning each season and then understanding that every season will be different. I mean, this year in 2017, we've had a, a crazy mild winter across the country. And then, you know, harsh cold snaps and the food crops are going to react differently. So just being prepared to basically pivot when when the climate gives you a challenge and, and know that you'll be able to overcome it and uh, keep trying, that's, that's always my motto. I hope spring is eternal when you're a gardener. It and absolutely by does. By adding food to my landscape, it's just made me interact in it that much more. Hmm. I love what you said about finding other organic growers and really picking their brain. That seems to be a common thing that I hear from people who are passionate food growers. And I'm curious, where would you tell people to go to find those folks? Are you going mostly to farmer's markets? Farmer's markets are a really great resource, uh, typically because the people growing the food are also standing there vending it, and they, they want to be able to share their experience with you so that you truly value what you're bringing home and sharing with your family. And also, your county extension. I'm very, very fortunate here in Wake County, North Carolina, to have Gina Myers as our extension agent. Her husband, Will Hooker, is a retired permaculture professor from North Carolina State University. And the two of them are just beacons of knowledge and have an incredible network and are very willing to share their information. And I find that extension agents across the country are wonderful resources for people to reach out to. And of course, the master gardeners um, tend to be people that are well-educated and very interested in um, not only giving you advice, but also helping you extend your network to reach all of the people that can give you the very best advice. Hmm. 
That's great. Well, when I saw the cover of your book, the cover photo, it made me smile because it reminded me of the way I garden here in my own suburban garden. Everything is intermingled. It's kind of a hot mess. I've got edibles and ornamentals living side by side. And it's echoing what you said in the dedication of your book, where you talk about landscapes embracing both beauty and bounty. So I'm curious what's on the cover of your book and how do you help folks decide where to tuck edibles? Because there's clearly so much potential for food production in the suburban landscape. Well, I appreciate the compliment on the cover. I'll confess that I took 1,200 images to get this one. Yes. And I want to note for any anyone listening, that uh, that eggplant has flea beetle damage, and that's just something that I live with because the flea beetles don't do anything at all to the fruit production, and I am not offended by holes in foliage. So this truly is an organic means of of growing an eggplant in my front foundation landscape, uh, as authentic as it can be with insect damage and all. Oh my gosh, I love it. You will never find perfection in my garden. I would hope that we're coming to an age where people aren't striving for perfection. They're they're just striving for what makes them feel happy and uh, you know, well adjusted in the society we live in. And perfection is just something that is totally unattainable. So don't set your goals like that. I, <laughs> I don't like agree your more. reach for stars that are unreachable. Uh, yes, I agree. <laughs> I agree. But, you know, some of the best advice I've given people when they when they want to, you know, really start growing their own food is for them to make a list of what they've eaten for the week and really evaluate the food that they ought to grow because the food you should grow is what you eat all the time. And so, you know, if you don't like eggplants and you don't like Swiss chard, don't grow them just because they look pretty at this garden center. <laughs> you know, go in with a list, figure out a couple of the edibles that you could incorporate and, and grow in a meaningful way so that you're not having to buy those from the grocery store. And, I, you know, I think um, anybody that has sun and, you know, land that is already in cultivation, whether you're growing a knockout rose or a limelight hydrangea or, you know, a a view hedge in and around all of those plants offers some space that you can tuck something in that you could bring in and serve for your, for your dinner. Yes. And I was struck by what you were saying when you said, don't grow it just to grow it. Although I have to say that people are going to see that beautiful eggplant. And even if they don't eat eggplant, they're going to want to grow it as an ornamental because it's just so fantastic. Even with holes in leaves, it's fantastic looking. And I, I always think back to this conversation I had one time interviewing Deborah Madison, the author of Vegetable Literacy, and I shared with her that I have gardener friends that grow vegetables for sport, and she looked at me like I was growing two heads. It was completely inconceivable to her, you know, as a chef, as a cook, that someone would just grow vegetables and not eat the vegetables. But we run into that from time to time, don't we? Well, we do, and you know, a lot of a lot of edibles are really dazzling 
when they're in little four packs, everything looks so innocent when you buy it in the spring. <laughs> yeah. and, and you don't necessarily want to face the reality that that heirloom tomato is going to be 20 foot long vine. Yeah. <laughs> Denial. <laughs> I'm Denial. literally experiencing this right now, you know, <laughs> as I was planting tomatoes yesterday and I was like, oh, it looks so neat and tidy. And then I think about what the landscape looks like in August. Yeah. Because I've obsessively planted tomatoes everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're right. I think a lot of times people just pick it up, like they, they buy parsley, and they very infrequently use it. Now, of course, parsley is a wonderful host plant for uh, flowers, you know, caterpillars, and a host of, of different beneficial insects. So by all means, when I use the word bounty, I'm frequently meaning both bounty for the ecosystem of your landscape and the bounty for you and your family. Well, and I thought you struck a chord with the horticultural entrepreneurs out there because there is tremendous potential for landscapers to offer their clients the incorporation of foodscaping as part of their business strategy and as a major incentive for homeowners to want to purchase the maintenance plans that they maybe don't otherwise purchase. You know, if they're buying a maintenance plan for ornamentals, they maybe only see their landscaper in the fall and in the spring just for a quick tidy up. But if they were to purchase a maintenance plan, say for edibles, that could be a bi-monthly plan or a monthly plan, and everybody wins there. The landscaper has more contact with their client. The homeowner is happy because the maintenance issue with any type of edible that they might be growing on their property is completely addressed. And I see it as a win-win. So I can imagine a scenario where the landscape professional is wanting to offer this to clients. Is that a future that you're envisioning as well? That is my long-term dream with foodscaping, is to really have this be a service that professional landscapers provide. I don't think we're living in a society where everyone is suddenly going to have time or interest or ability to be able to grow their own food. But horticulture professionals do have this capacity and this knowledge. And I'm seeing in particular with younger homeowners that they don't value the services of traditional landscapers at all. What they want is a service that will come in and provide them beauty, make sure that their landscape is safe so that their children and pets aren't going to be exposed to any toxic chemicals. And maybe at the end of the day, you know, get to eat a BLT that was grown on site. <laughs> and so ultimately, I, I, my, my real goal is to train landscapers to be able to look at, at a design and understand how they could incorporate food in different pockets and add to seasonal value no matter where you are on the planet. You know, I've never had a landscape customer call because they wanted, you know, a fresh salad. But maybe one day that will actually be one of the roles that landscape professionals get to play. And that, to me, is adding value beyond any measure because we, we need to make the most out of everything that we buy. We have cell phones that don't just make it so that we can call people, right? They take photos and they connect us to social media. and You know, there are all these different functions. And right now, our landscapes aren't necessarily functioning on that multi-level. 
but foodscaping definitely offers that as an added bonus. And I, I hope one day that it will really raise the bar and raise the necessity for the landscape industry as a whole. Well, I agree. And I think, as you were saying, raise the bar, I was thinking lift the veil, you know, lift the veil and raise the bar. I have a dear friend that comes over and she knows that she has carte blanche to harvest any herbs that she wants, you know, because she's a great cook and she'll bring me, it's a, it's kind of self-motivational for me too, because she will make food and then bring me some. And so I say, Hey, go ahead, use any herb you want. I don't care. It's great. She's a wonderful cook, but you know, she'll look at my garden and then kind of go, Oh, you know, the next time we buy a house, I'm going to get a house that where I have room for a garden. If she could see foodscaping, the foodscaping potential, as outlined in your book, especially the way that you can just tuck things in and have this amazing amount of production, surprising, I think, for most people, she doesn't have to wait till that next property to make that happen. And we kind of need to lift the veil on that for folks. I completely agree. Uh, you know, it's amazing how many people think that the only way you can grow food is in some raised box bed, you know, <laughs> tucked away in your backyard. And, you know, it's not to say that that isn't an option, but it's definitely not your most aesthetic option. And by foodscaping, you're incorporating food with other biologically diverse plants. So you have a far less of a problem with disease and insects versus planting like you're a mini farmer where you plant all of the same crops really tight in one space. You're basically inviting problems to come some point in the season. So I think when people look at the ornamental landscape they already have, what they're not realizing is how many different plant families are represented from the common plants that are surrounding every building. And how that can act as an aid for growing food in amongst that by bringing in beneficial insects that might wipe out your aphids on your lettuce crops and, you know, reducing the disease problem so that your food crops actually develop much more healthfully. So, I, you know, I hope that uh, people long term will see that it's not just square foot gardening. That, that is not your only option as a homeowner that there are other ways to make the most of the square footage that you already have that you've never really noticed. Well, and I love what you just mentioned about the biodiversity, because I also have friends that are edible gardeners exclusively, and they just kind of look down on ornamentals. But you see it as a perfect marriage, having edibles with ornamentals, because you get that biodiversity. And I listened to an interview you did once where you were talking about the surprising amount of biodiversity, I guess, from a from a deficit standpoint that can come if you only garden with edibles. And you gave some examples of plants that seem to offer biodiversity, but when you plant them all together, you're really not offering biodiversity. Can you address that? Yeah, so... You know, most Americans actually only grow food crops from four plant families. Solanaceae being number one, which is peppers, eggplants, tomatoes, and potatoes. So when you're planting your, your spring crops and you're putting them all out in a line, of course, my first thing is this. You're not harvesting with a combine. You don't have to plant things in straight lines. You're not a farmer. 
<laughs> so stop that. It doesn't look good. <laughs> but you're putting all of those crops in one space, and all of those crops, again, come from one family. So you wonder why an early blight comes in overnight and all of your crops just suddenly you know, started to wilt. And they're looking really bad, and, and then you're, you're freaking out because you failed and you don't know why. Well, typically, it's because of monocultures that insects and disease come in and, and, and have a fast impact. So when I, when I look at people's landscapes, particularly with cool-season crops, which is what's active in my garden right now, we, we are able to grow brassicaceous crops all winter. Growing broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage and kohlrabi and Brussels sprouts. But again, these are all different crops from our point of view. We as human beings have selected and made modifications on all of these brassicaceous varieties of plants so that they look different. But from a biological standpoint, they're all the same. They're all going to be impacted by cutworms and, and cabbage worms and uh, you know, aphids will come in as your as your uh, temperatures start to rise. So by putting them all in one place, you're really putting like a big bright red exclamation point, like "Come here and get me!" <laughs> Versus having them separated with some of your other ornamental plants, say you know a rose or a yew or an aedes or a picea. Uh, you know, in, in my climate, we grow a lot of azaleas and um, hydrangeas, and all of these plants offer the advantage of having flowering at different seasons, meaning they're going to be attracting different pollinators and, and insects at different times, which ultimately will help reduce the pest insect problem. Uh, whenever you have a, an insect that sort of blooms out of control, there always is a biological method for dealing with that. Um, now, if you're Brain to, to kill that problem insect, you're likely also going to kill all of your beneficial insects. So this is where understanding how to manage the land organically really comes into play. And it all does come down to that biological diversity that your ornamental plant palette offers. So I face this as well, as people in the ornamental industry don't always see the value of food crops, and people that only grow food think that growing a hydrangea for beauty seems really frivolous. And I argue that there should be space for all of these things, not only in landscapes, but also, you know, in, in our farmlands where there, you know, farms that have fence rows that have a biologically diverse range of native plants tend to have less pest problems. And that's because those fence rows are offering the ability to attract other insects. And, and that's what really organic farmers always have to go back to. They might be growing a monoculture, but surrounding that monoculture, they need a biodiverse range of pollinator plants. They call them pollinator gardens for that reason. You typically have 12 to 14 different plant families represented in that pollinator garden just for this purpose. So if you're looking at that method and applying it to your landscape, and the big advantage that your landscape already offers is that you likely have five or six plant families that your builder already gave you. You didn't thank them for it, and that you should. <laughs> yes. Wow. You know, as you were speaking, I was thinking about that bumper sticker that's that says, uh, start seeing motorcycles. 
And we need to train gardeners and kids, especially to start seeing plant families so that they can yeah. they can know if they are, you know, growing monocultures inadvertently because <laughs> that happens. And I, I love that point that you that you uh, highlight. I think it's so good for people to appreciate the diversity and the benefits that come from that, which makes the foodscape revolution the perfect solution for folks that have been battling pest issues and maybe not appreciating that it just simply stems from a lack of diversity in what they're planting. It's one thing that I would love to see the ornamental industry start a biological diversity campaign and, and, you know, really promote that what, what they've been offering for all of these years is a, a biologically diverse range for your everyday landscape. Absolutely. Well, you say in your book that rice is a great gateway plant into foodscaping. That's got to be a little jarring for folks. I, you and I talked in our pre-interview chat that that's got to seem a little intimidating to folks thinking about growing rice. That's such a foreign concept to people. So you really get their attention right out of the gate. And you're telling them that rice can be a gateway plant into growing edibles. What's your pitch? Well, you know, this was one of those aha light bulb moments for me. I was at a tour um, in historic Charleston at Magnolia Plantation, and they asked the question, what made the South rich? And, of course, we all said, cotton, tobacco, corn, and the answer was rice. And I thought, oh, my gosh, rice? Really? We can grow rice here? <laughs> and, of course, we can. And I started to really dive into just understanding what what rice is and where it comes from and the different species of rice that are available and really started to understand how beautiful grains are, just in general, grown on their own like we would in ornamental grass. And I had the opportunity to, to visit a garden that grew a lot of rice here in my community Um a family from Malaysia, they had always grown in rice in their home garden in Laos. And um, they said, well, we, it grows fine here in the suburbs of Bali. We, you know, we have great soil for this and, and we get, you know, a, a good amount of rain in the summertime. And I went back to visit. Their rice paddies were uh, all throughout their backyard. And they looked just like a penicillin. Just just like an ornamental grass that you would typically buy for the middle of your container. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, wouldn't that be amazing if everybody that grew, you know, a purple leaf penicetum tried rice one time, and at the end of the season, you could get one dinner from that container. How cool would that be? You know, how authentic is that experience? Yes. And so I set out to do that. And, and uh, the reason I say that it's a gateway for landscapes is, because it's one of the easiest crops that you could ever grow. Very, very low maintenance, almost no pest problems. I would say, actually, no pest problems that I've experienced. And I have 15 different landscapers use rice as centers of containers and, um, and different planters. And oddly enough, one landscaper put them at a really fancy country club here in, in the Raleigh area, a place that I would never be invited to. <laughs> 
And they were so charmed by the rice, particularly as it started to grow out and it started to bloom and people were asking, you know, what is this? They ended up doing a tasting menu based off of the interest that they had from country club members. Oh, get out. And now this year they've doubled the amount that they're growing. And they're really starting to become known as that place that has a low country feast in August. And I think that rice, people can understand how it grows because you are already familiar with growing ornamental grasses. And so you treat it the same. It doesn't actually have to be in standing water. It can grow just fine with normal irrigation. So you don't need to have a bog or some type of soupy area in order to grow rice? You don't. And that was what the real joy was to find out with growing rice. There are actually upland varieties of rice that don't need to be in, in standing water at all. And many of the varieties of lowland rice don't require it. That's just an agronomic means of keeping weeds out. Rice can handle standing water. But I have found that it grows extremely well in container plantings, along with coleus and petunias and, you know, all of your other favorite summer flowering plants. And instead of putting in that purple leaf penicetum, yep. you can replace it with rice. And it's absolutely beautiful. Okay, so for folks who want to try this, let's make this a 2017 goal for folks who are listening to this show. Where are they going to find rice and how are they going to grow it? How Do they sow it? Do they just direct sow it? What do you have them do? Okay, so growing rice is really easy. You can do it in a couple of different ways. I like to grow my rice seed, which you can order from Baker Creek Seed Company or rareseed.com. I will also say start asking for it at your local garden center because when there's a demand, they will actually react to that. And there's no reason that garden centers can't have rice already growing just like you would buy a tomato or a pepper. You can buy the seed. I like to sow mine in communal flats. So I just put like an inch of soil down, scatter the seeds, and then cover it with another maybe half inch or three-quarter inch of soil. It typically germinates when your temperatures are consistently over 50. And I just pull out clumps from within that tray. And that's what I put in my containers. I planted as clumps in my landscape. You can plant them directly from seed in the ground. I just like the gratification of planting something when it's actively growing. So you can do it either way. And it will grow as the summer gets warmer and warmer. So rice is definitely a great option for people that live in hot climates. However, Minnesota actually has commercial rice production. So you might even find varieties that are specifically for northern climates where you have really long days that your temperatures might not be as warm. Hmm. I'm growing southern varieties because... You know, we have to deal with sustained heat and temperatures sometimes getting at 105 degree range. It's very uncomfortable. Yeah. But rice is one of the very easiest of the edibles that you could ever try growing. You know, tomatoes are really what people get started with. It's, it's probably the crop that requires the most amount of effort, whereas rice, you plant it and you just watch in amazement as it grows on its own. And then at the, as it starts to set its seed, you can simply collect those seeds, 
it's one of the easiest grains to deal with because you just put it in a hot, either a pot or a saute pan with no oil, and the seeds will actually burst out of the chafe. And then you can cook it right then, you can store it for the season and eat it later. Um, but being able to separate it uh, from the chafe is, is a really easy process compared to many of the other grains that I talk about in the book. Yeah, and how how tall does it get? I'm curious. Uh, it, again, it would be variety dependent. On on average, they're going to grow about two and a half foot vegetatively, with another half foot for the seed head. So collectively, about three foot tall. Which, which is perfect for containers. It's the perfect substitution for a purple leaf penicillin that you've probably planted for the last ten years. Yes. This is a great way to mix it up, and there are different colored leaf varieties of rice. So there is a purple leaf variety. If you really love that color that you get from the, the purple fountain grass, you can literally have the same color effect from growing rice. Hmm. Well, and how cool is that, that people can say, you know, for folks listening who really do want to try something new, it seems like it's super easy to do. And how cool would it be to say, I'm growing rice this year. I'm putting rice in the middle of my containers. My, the reaction that I had from this country club was so overwhelmingly positive and totally unexpected because we sort of snuck the rice in under the radar, didn't necessarily tell them. And it really gave me hope that even some of the most cynical people in our society are charmed when they get to have a local meal. <laughs> I think that the potential for growing rice in and amongst planters and you know, even in commercial spaces and shopping centers, you know, it could just be a great use of the space and, and make it so people have access to a crop that they could have never imagined being able to grow in their own community. Well, I love that. And, you know, this makes your job as someone who is leading the charge for the foodscape revolution, to be a cool finder, to find edibles like this that are fantastic substitutions that people can begin to embrace. And then they kind of feel cool as well. You know, gardening becomes way more exciting then. You know, anytime you can introduce a crop, which two years ago I started to grow peanuts for the first time, and I can't even tell you the cool fact around peanuts because it's way off the charts. <laughs> if you want to see a bunch of middle-aged men get really, really excited, you give them a beer and you have them pull peanuts out of your dead edges in the fall. And they will hoot and holler and then you give them those roasted peanuts that they were a part of. And it really changes their perspective on understanding the value of the landscape. Well, and along those lines, there's a place in your book where you offer a list for homeowners, where you outline the benefits of incorporating foods into their landscape, embracing foodscaping. And among them, you say fresh food, reduced risk for foodborne illnesses, lowering food costs, fewer pest problems due to increased biodiversity, which we already talked about decreased exposure to harmful chemicals in food, change of lifestyle with healthier food options, the simple pleasure and fun of growing things like peanuts, 
and the unexpected beauty. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time with the unexpected beauty piece because there are so many edibles that are absolutely gorgeous to grow. And I'm wondering what are some of your favorites, Brie? I'm assuming eggplant makes the list, but I'd love to hear about some others. Well, yes. I I love the look of the dwarf basil. So I use those as bed edgers that are kind of a nod to the formality that a boxwood would offer, except, you know, you can get like 300 plants from 99 cents worth of seed. <laughs> so you change the economics. <laughs> you yes. change the whole economics between uh, what a boxwood would cost and what you can get from the micrete variety of basil. Uh, peanuts, again, peanuts keep making the list because they grow in a really nice mounded uniform way and beautiful yellow flowers all summer. Uh, they have very little disease problems. Actually, I would say no disease problems at all. But my all-time favorite edible to incorporate from a beauty standpoint is wheat. I grow wheat both as a mixed border, kind of as a meadow mixed in with other flowering plants. And in clumps, just like you would any other ornamental grass, because I like the organization that clumps of grass offer. And of course, I'm charmed by grass when it sways in the wind. But when wheat turns to the season as its seed is starting to ripen, and you get amber waves of grain, you can't not feel a level of patriotism. And so in my garden, as the wheat starts to turn, people come and they get their graduation photos taken in our front yard. And frequently Mother's Day photo shoots happen here. And everyone's comment is how amber waves of grain, you feel an instinctual connection to that. And wheat is something that's currently kind of a crop that, that a lot of people are confused by and sort of a big attack on, on eating carbohydrates. And I think that with more knowledge and with more localized organic growing methods, we will all find that uh, having carbohydrates in our diet is a big important part of what fuels us to be functional through our busy days and, and gives us the energy that we really need. And having access to local carbs is not something that's currently in our agricultural model. And I would hope that my legacy as the crazy grain lady will be that people will put clumps of wheat in their front yard and and not only feel patriotic, but know that they're feeling themselves because helped humanity evolve for the last 10,000 years. Hmm. Especially the crop that made it so people could form communities and then ultimately specialize and have it so that we weren't just chasing around the globe, hunting and gathering. Great point. And I, I love the beautiful factor of wheat as well. I have for a very long time wanted to put together my own harvest sheaf. So just collecting a cutting of wheat and then putting a piece of wire around it and kind of fanning it out and then putting a beautiful silk ribbon on it. That's been my dream centerpiece for Thanksgiving for years now. And I never even thought about growing my own, but I could make that happen. It's a really fun experience. Now, you know, of course, it's laborious 
to hand harvest and thresh and grind. But that's why you throw a party. (laughs) And you make all of your friends do it with you. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, many hands, light work, right, Bree? That's correct. I love it. Well, and even just the decorative application of that. I, I just think there are so many things you can do with it. Now, how high does that get? Uh, for me, wheat is going to be, again, much like rice, two and a half to three foot tall. Okay. Of course, there are other grains that you can grow that are more for screening. Your tin sorghum is great to grow 10 to 12 foot. So if you're trying to screen out someone's ugly garage or, you know, the, the house across the street that you don't want to see all season, uh, you can grow grains in this context just to act as a seasonal screen. Uh, but wheat is, for me, about chest uh, high by the time it's in flowering. Okay. So these grains are fast-growing, yes? They are. They're fast-growing. They're very drought-tolerant. They have very few pest issues. Uh, I do like to incorporate other plants with my grains because grains typically are wind-pollinated, so they're not necessarily a source of nutrition for any of my beneficial pollinators. I like to make sure that I'm, I'm creating an environment that nourishes not just myself, but the insects and pollinators and the ecosystem that my landscape has evolved into. Okay. Now, if we decide to grow something like wheat or rice, does that mean we're going to have that springing up all over the garden? Is it like a self-seeder? Is it going to go everywhere or not? Not at all. I'm particularly if you're gathering seeds to be able to harvest and, and make into flour or, or use the rice for your dinner. Um, you won't actually have any self-seeding at all. I don't, I, this is my fourth season growing grains intensively, 12 months of the year, and I have yet to have any grain self-sow. I purposely plant them every season. Now, that's certainly not the case with larkspur and poppies. That's right. They come up absolutely everywhere. And <laughs> this year is the year that larkspur is on the invasive list in my house. It's on the invasive list. Well, Absolutely. Um, you know, I have to ask you, too, because you have this section in your book where you're talking about zones, zones for edibles. And when I interviewed Pam Pennick recently about her book, The Water Saving Garden, she uses a, uh, a design principle called ripple gardening in a similar way to these edible zones that you've established. And it makes complete sense to me. In fact, I think it totally supports what anyone with a kitchen garden already knows. And that is that you need proximity when you're growing edibles because proximity is your friend when you're growing food. If you can see it, you're going to remember to harvest it. So if you've got your garden, you know, 50 feet away from the house, way, way in the back, and you're making supper, you're not going to go trudging. <laughs> you're not going to go get your shoes, leave the kitchen, go and harvest. You're just much more apt to do that if your edibles are close to your house. So I think your zone principle very much supports this. Can you just walk us through the foodscape zones that you've established and how those zones dictate where edibles get planted? Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think all of these zones ultimately come back to some permaculture principles that, um, you know, just make too much sense not to to give the nod to. 
I try not to use the P word too often because I find that it can be polarizing and it intimidates people. But the principles of permaculture really are to put the food crops that need the least amount of maintenance and the least amount of water furthest away and then those crops that need a lot more attention to be closer to where you live. And that was exactly what I was aiming to identify with these zones. So zone one is going to be that space that's right around your house where you can easily drag a hose or you already have an irrigation system in place. You know, one of the main things with growing seed is that they do require water. And there are some drought-tolerant crops, but the crops that most Americans love to grow, peppers and eggplants and tomatoes, all require water nearly every day, depending on, you know, how much rain you're getting and what your temperatures are. So planting those in an area, one, where you walk past on a regular basis, so it's very convenient, but that you also have an easy access to watering. Because nothing will kill a tomato faster than letting it dry out on a long, hot August day. Yes. So then, you know, you work out, say, 50 feet from your foundation of your house. So that might incorporate beds that, um, you know, island beds or beds that are adjacent to your property borders. And those I consider to be zone two. You can still get a hose to them, but you're probably not going to water there every single day. You likely don't have an irrigation system in place. So you want to site plants that are going to be more capable of handling less than ideal circumstances. Those also happen to be beds that typically don't have as well-amended soil. So you, know, you, you spend a lot of time and money on the landscape that's like right surrounding your house. And in my case, we always have to bring in soil amendments because we either have heavy clay or we have all sand. We don't have a lot of organic matter worked into our soil. But the further away you get from that foundation landscape, the poorer your soil tends to be. Okay. And so those are for less crops that just require less maintenance. And that's really where a lot of the grains come in, fruit trees, uh, plants like uh Blueberries and raspberries, those are actually great candidates for zone three, which is going to be the farthest away from your house. Often that's the border that blocks you from the street or, uh, you know, hides your, your neighbor's playground in the far corners of your backyard. And so you want to site plants that require basically no help at all in those areas. And for me, that's where blackberries and raspberries are really great candidates because I don't want them running and taking over the world in my nice, my nice beds where I've invested a lot of money in soil. Yes. But they can ramble along in the beds that are screening me from my neighbors so that we have a level of privacy. Well, I like how you've started to talk about things working together, the edibles working with the ornamental framework. Because in chapter two, you talk about how in order to have a foodscape, you have to have an ornamental plant framework. Now, for many new gardeners, that can be just as challenging as trying to incorporate edibles. So if you have mastery of none, neither ornamentals or edibles, how can we help people put an ornamental framework in place and in quick fashion? 
Are there some tips that you have? I'm assuming that your schooling is paying off dividends here with helping people create the ornamental framework. Well, and that's such a great question. Yes. And this is really where, you know, hiring a landscape professional or doing your research comes comes into play because you do need to know how big a plant is going to grow in order to figure out where it belongs in your landscape. And, you know, what I often will tell my design clients is go to a garden center and write down all the names of the plants that you were intrinsically motivated by. So the ones that you just they're like, oh, gosh, this would make me so happy to see this out my window. And bring that list to me so that I can sort out where those plants belong. Because it's not only size and flowering time, but understanding the directionality of your landscape. So where is it going to be morning sun? Where will you have hot afternoon sun? You know, do you have, you know, tall trees that are going to cast a shade and Make it so that your full sun hydrangea isn't going to grow as well in that space versus a shade-loving hydrangea. And, you know, these are the, the intricacies that are really what distinguish horticulture professionals. And I really encourage anyone who's starting off to hire a professional to, to get a greater understanding of this because it will make your journey as a gardener so much easier and more enjoyable. And, um, of course, you know, you're going to always learn and your landscape is going to grow and it's going to change. And that's one of the joys of gardening, but one of the challenges in the landscape realm because it's not static. And, you know, plants are going to overgrow their space and really want professionals to be able to educate the general public that, um, you know, your, your tastes are going to change and new plants are going to be introduced and, you should reevaluate your landscape every few years, just like you would your wardrobe or, you know, the interior design of your house. And, uh, you know, planting a landscape for 20 years literally would require a tremendous amount of vision. And you can't always predict what's going to happen. Uh, so, you know, to, to have an interaction with a professional who knows, and then, you know, to, to look at those ornamentals as the plants that are going to provide you that seasonal beauty so that you can have a flower arrangement on your dining room table for Easter. And, um, you know, just that, that, that bring you this, this happiness and cheer that um, maybe you don't feel when you look out and only see evergreens that get sheared with, with hedge clippers. So, you know, to, to look beyond what we've, what we've always seen as the standard landscape palette. Well, along those lines, another great feature of your book is something you've included at the very end of your book, which I think could be a book in and of itself. It's actually in the appendix, and it's in the very first part of the appendix. It's on page 175, and it's a resource called Ornamentals for Every Region. And what you did is you asked some of the best horticulturists from 15 different regions across the United States to weigh in with their top ornamental plant picks so that folks can have a stunning ornamental landscape in which to tuck edibles. I thought this was a fantastic idea. I just kept starring things and I've dog-eared this. 
But that resource in particular, I wanted to make sure we highlighted for folks because these are some pretty excellent recommendations. Well, you know, it, what's funny is that that was the original intent, was to really come up with a book that would almost be like recipes for your landscape. And of course, in the process of writing it, we all discovered that there was just a lot of other preliminary information that needed to be put out there so that beginning gardeners wouldn't feel too intimidated and they would they would have all of this additional information for under, understanding how to grow. I would dream of, of making a book with all of these talented professionals from across the U.S. that that gave great lists of ornamentals and then the lists of corresponding uh, food crops that ultimately ended in a yard-to-table recipe. Wouldn't that be so cool? Absolutely. <laughs> But I think that it was really, really important. Um, it's something that I'm aware of as a, a horticulture professional that my experiences and my, my realm of expertise is for a very specific region. And what I do can't be applied to say where my parents live in southeastern Michigan and certainly doesn't apply for people in Southern California. And so to acknowledge that you need to look at your regional resources and, and, you know, not, not try to um, dumb gardening down to the point that it's one rule for this entirely huge space of land that, that we live in in this country and know that every region is different and um, really encourage people to get to know the zone they're growing in and, 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 you know, look at their local resources first and foremost because, you know, I was a classic example of, of reading Martha Stewart books, and I thought they were wonderful, but I don't live in a climate uh, that's ever going to give me what she was able to do in Connecticut or, you know, the out in Cape Cod. And so that shouldn't be what my aim is, because that's an unreachable goal. So, you know, appreciate what your region offers and make the most of it. I really thought of it as like the keys to the kingdom, because this is exactly what so many home gardeners are looking for. They want to know what the very top landscape professionals have in their arsenal that they know are the true stunners. And, you know, we can find these out by hook or by crook and by digging and talking to people. But to have someone that's just willing to share, you know, here's here are the go to's. If you live in this area, these are the stunners. I loved that. I, I just thought it was great. I thought it was a generous resource. And that alone to me was was the big bonus for this book. I just thought, oh, my gosh, you get all of this about foodscaping. And then at the end, here's this other hidden resource. I just thought it was amazing. Well, when I interviewed Megan Kane, the creative vegetable gardener, she said the same thing you've said. And I think it's something that edible growers figure out over time. And that is to grow what you like to eat. So, for instance, you mentioned in your book that you don't need tons of rhubarb, whereas I, being Swedish Scandinavian, we love to make rhubarb desserts all summer long. And I've been saying for a long time now, I need to have a few more rhubarb patches. So what are some of your bigger edible crops that you like to plant based on what you like to eat? Well, I would say my number one crop that I grow that actually I have two. I grow 100% of the tomatoes that we consume from ketchup, salsa, pulse soup, 
fresh however you want. We we don't ever buy tomatoes. Wow. Um, I got really scared when I read about the dirty dozen, and I set out. I set a goal for myself to to figure out how I could make it so that we didn't really have to buy crops that were on that list. And tomatoes were really, I think at that at that year they were the number one on the dirty dozen list. Wow. But an easier crop to do that with has been garlic, and you know we eat garlic basically with every meal. We it just sort of gets tossed in, and we're sauteing vegetables, garlic goes in. And I thought, okay, well, I will grow garlic as a bed edge. It's really easy. You literally just bung the clove into the bed edge. It doesn't take up a lot of space. It's very drought tolerant. Turns out it has this great component for it wards off in brown mammals. I have this huge mole and bowl problem. You know, those cute little things that go in and eat all the roots of your favorite plants, especially the ones that you paid a lot of money for. By planting garlic or onions as a bed edge, I deterred them out of my landscape bed. Now, it's not that I don't have molds and bowls. I just don't have them eating the roots of my houses, eating all of my tulips in the springtime. I planted 365 cloves of garlic because I said we eat garlic every day. And I didn't think about what that actually turns into. So each clove that you plant does develop into a bulb, which has 10 to 12 cloves on it. So garlic is a really easy crop to grow 100% that you eat, and then you can facilitate all of your favorite friends and neighbors because it's an easy one to grow more than you need. <laughs> And they're thrilled to get a garlic braid, right? Who would turn that exactly. down? Exactly. They're beautiful with garlic braids. All the neighborhood children actually learned how to braid because of the garlic crop. And in the meantime, they've warded off all the vampires. So we have no vampires <laughs> I love it. Well, one of the things that I thought was particularly genius of you is when you point out that leveraging the edges of your beds and gardens is the easiest place to plant edibles, and you call them edible edges. Edges get so much attention in general. I always tell my student gardeners that it's the first thing we do is to tend the edges for a clean look and line, and they quickly learn that it's easy to get instant satisfaction that you've accomplished something if you tend the edges first. And this is a very easy way for folks to latch on to foodscaping, to tucking edibles into the edges. So what are you growing in the edges of your garden? You mentioned uh, the garlic and the onions and the basil. In the book, you share some cool season and warm season crop examples on page 46. Could you preview some of those for us? Yeah, absolutely. My, my bed edge obsession actually started with potatoes. Oh, potatoes. Because I, um, you know, these potatoes started growing on my countertop, and the beds were all planted, and I didn't have a lot of room. And then I realized that I, I did have this space. I had a 60-foot-long poverty border that I have been fighting with the grass and weeds on the bed edge. And I thought, all right, I'm just going to plant these potatoes along here and see what happens. And from that 60-foot edge, I got 80 pounds of potatoes. Get out of And town. I really started to pay attention 
to edge square footage and how many square feet make up a typical landscape edge without using any of the other square footage, just that space right along the border. And the potatoes for me really became a no-brainer. Anytime potatoes grow on the countertop, you have an edge somewhere in my landscape that has an open space. Um, garlic and onions are some of my favorites for the cooler season because they're green during the cold season. And I love to look out and see green when it's cold in January. It makes me feel like they're close to the future. Uh, but, you know, some of the one-season options, especially for northern growers, are really handy. Like I mentioned, the basil helps keep mammals out of your garden. So the bunny rabbits tend to not like the way basil tastes. So if you use basil as an egg, they're less likely to hop in and eat all the rest of the stuff you are growing in that area. Um, Bush beans are another great summer option to, to spend your beds with. And it makes harvesting really convenient because, again, it's really accessible. It's right there on the edge next to where you're walking. And I like to grow legumes like peanuts and soybeans, not only because I like to eat them, but because they will naturally take nitrogen and, you know, really provide a great nutritional source to all the rest of the plants in that landscape. Well, that's right. And, you know, one of the things that you also do a great job of pointing out in your book is that these edibles not only serve so many different functions, but in many cases, they're more beautiful than people expected them to be. One of my absolute favorite pages in your book is page 49, because you're giving gardeners edible exchanges. In this case, you're focusing on a group of plants you call beauty queens, because these plants are garden standouts. You say things like, hey, if you like coleus, you'll love basil. Instead of small shrubs and perennials, plant pepper or bush beans. I thought those suggestions were very helpful, especially to folks who don't want to sacrifice the beauty. Yes. So, you know, we've already talked a lot about how grains are great substitutes for ornamental grasses. Um, some great examples for, uh, you know, flowering kale, which has become so popular. And I think that's fantastic. But if you like flowering kale, you can actually grow kale that you can eat. <laughs> so why not? And you can also have lettuce and arugula, which is one of my all-time favorite greens. And the nice thing with arugula, when it starts to flower, it doesn't change the taste of the foliage. So you can let it bloom and be a pollen source for all of your favorite spring uh, beneficial insects and get salads from it at the same time. Oh, that's great to know. And of course... Broccoli and cauliflower, to me, are just no-brainers because they're positively gorgeous plants. And, you know, instead of throwing them out like you would in or, uh, a flowering kale, you cut their heads off and, and eat them for dinner. So it just all together makes so much sense. Um, you know, and I, I grow a huge number of coleus. I think coleus are must-have in every garden. But along with my coleus, I love to grow other leafy plants like basil and mustard and Swiss chard because they give you that same color content. Um, but the added bonus of being able to eat them, which, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's very satisfying to go out into your garden and, and eat what you've grown. 
Now, mustard is something I've never grown. How do you use it? How are you how are you eating it? Is it with a salad? You're just taking some greens as you're making your salad? Yeah. So, you know, mustard was something I was introduced to when I moved to the South, along with collards. And they're definitely uh, a big part of Southern cuisine. So young leaves, you can cut up and, and toss into your salad. And they just add a little bit of spice. It's a plant that's av- it's full of vitamins, high in magnesium and high in vitamin D. So there's lots of nutritional reasons to eat them. But you can use the large mustard greens and wilt them just like you would cabbage or, or a collard, you know, just basically steam them, add a little olive oil and salt, and they're absolutely delicious addition to a stir fry. Oh, okay. uh, So any of your leafy greens can really be either cooked or eaten raw. Okay. Well, I also think that one of the other really fascinating chapters in your book for edible growers would be chapter five, which is the chapter where you're focusing on fruits, nuts, berries, and the grains that we've already talked about. But I think of these as sometimes a little bit of a novelty for new gardeners. It seems to be one of the last areas they that they start to venture into. What are your thoughts, especially on things like berries and nuts and fruits? I think that this is where the greatest um, growth opportunities really are. And it, these are also the, the plants that, in theory, can be the least amount of maintenance uh, because they're permanent. You're only planting them once and then you're harvesting them, you know, as they start to ripen. And so, you know, looking at, say, fruit trees, um, look at growing some native persimmons, native pawpaws, the kinds of fruit that you're never going to access at the grocery store because they don't have shipping viability. They are low-maintenance. They're actually hosts of important beneficial pollinators. And at the end of the year, you get something that's very unique and delicious, and you grew it, you know, out in your in your island bed that, that's hiding your utilities. Um, the same thing with blackberries and raspberries. Uh, they might not be the best option for areas of high cultivation because they can be rather aggressive and in their ability to spread. But, you know, these are easy perennial crops that you can incorporate in property edges that will give you something to eat. And even if you don't eat them, the birds will eat them. I find that that's the case with blueberries. When people plant blueberries, their biggest challenge with that is keeping the birds from eating the fruit before they get to them. <laughs> My solution is just to plant more blueberries. And That's right. Get out there more often. <laughs> I do. I do the same thing, Bree. I just say the same thing. Plus, they're gorgeous year round. The, in the spring, you get the pretty flower. In the fall, the foliage is gorgeous. I always tell Minnesotans, if you're looking for a replacement shrub, get a blueberry bush. I completely agree. And thankfully, the ornamental industry has really picked up on that trend and have developed some really beautiful varieties that stay a little bit shorter so you can manage them even, say, like at window height or under a window for a foundation landscape. That's right. They've even developed varieties that now are self-compatible, so you don't have to have different cultivars. So I still always recommend having genetic diversity represented. Um, but for people that may only have room for one or two plants or want to do them in containers, 
there are now varieties that are they will self pollinate and produce fruit without having to be cropped. Yeah, and a nut tree that I think is very undervalued is a hazelnut. The ha- the hazelnut, did you say? Hazelnut, yes. This is actually a native to North America, hardy zone three to zone eight. So this is a plant that basically can be grown in every pocket of the U.S. Get out of town. And I had the, no idea. The research being done at Rutgers University is really going to transform the role that hazelnuts play in our landscape. They've been you know, making selections for disease resistance. And not only that, they've selected forms with bright red new growth that persist through the heat of the summer with the beautiful quilted texture of the foliage. So they just tick off every single box. They're, they're gorgeous. They're edible. The nice thing with hazelnuts is you can grow them as a coppice plant, meaning you do a hard prune and let them grow out just their new growth, and they will set nuts on that new fluff. So if I you don't want them it. to grow into huge trees, you can grow them much smaller. Um, I, I think hazelnut in 10 years will be a plant that everybody is just kind of like, well, of course I have a hazelnut. I <laughs> well, love it. Well, now you've said something that I really want to try. I would love to try that. I mean, I had no idea they would be hardy through zone three. I mean, my goodness, we can all do it. That's what the real beauty of some of the fruit and nut trees is their versatility in a lot of different climates. And, you know, I live in an area where we do have a lot of pecans growing, but pecans aren't always the best option for a home gardener. Uh, It's a relatively soft wood, so in storms, ice storms and and hurricanes, large branches will fall and, and, you know, can really cause a lot of damage. If you have a pecan tree... That's a real treat, but I, as a designer, haven't incorporated a lot of pecans unless people have a lot of property, because I don't want to put them near a house and long-term have, you know, a giant branch fall and break through your kitchen. That's not the goal of any landscape. (laughs) No, I'm sure not. Well, on page 107, you spend a little bit of time talking about controlling pest and disease, and you offer some advice based on your own personal experience. And there are two things that I think it's important for people to hear from an experienced gardener such as yourself. And that is, first, pests aren't the big problem that chemical companies would have you believe. And second, that BT is perfectly safe. We are so lucky to live in a world with Bacillus thuringiensis, (laughs) BT for short. (laughs) When I was in college, I didn't know that BT was safe and an organic solution, particularly for caterpillar infestations. But Bacillus thuringiensis is a biological control that caterpillars eat, and it gives them the feeling that they're full, and they ultimately just starve to death. It's, it's not technically a pesticide, because it, it is a secondary response. It's, it's not a chemical that's just outright killing those caterpillars. It's a consumptive-based uh, biological. BT is, is a, a gardener's right-hand method, particularly in the season when you're growing you know, cabbages and kales and cauliflowers, because the cabbage worms will truly wreak havoc on your crops, and they're very challenging to deal with 
you know, if you're not able to get rid of those caterpillars. But, you know, when you're spraying a, bo- a broad-spectrum pesticide, you're going to end up killing everything. And, you know, the bad insects might only make up 2 or 3% of the insects that you're actually impacting. So you're always best to side on the, 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 the reason of, I'm not going to disturb an entire ecosystem just to deal with this one insect. What's the solution to this? Is there a, another bug that eats this? If so, you know, search online, find find a company that, that will actually sell you those biologicals which can hatch in your landscape and ultimately wage the war within themselves. Um, you know, one thing that I love to do is, is to let the wasp kill my hornworms for me. It's not that I'm not going to have hornworms, but that is the host that a wasp will ultimately lay its eggs in, and then as those eggs hatch, they parasitize the hornworm. And I don't have to worry about the long-term damage of that hornworm eating all of the foliage on my tomatoes. By letting the wasp parasitize the hornworm, I'm enabling this biological system to persist for years to come. Absolutely. Well, and I I never forget one time when I interviewed Shane Smith of the Cheyenne Botanic Garden, and he's he was someone who wrote early on about greenhouses. And we were talking about pests in greenhouses, which a lot of times uh, new gardeners would say, oh, I didn't know there would be pests in a greenhouse. It's a totally self-contained environment. And yet there are pests that thrive in greenhouses because it's self-contained. But one of the things that Shane had shared that I continue to use to this day is how much you can accomplish even with just a sharp stream of water and spraying yeah. plants down. And for me, that's really how I addressed Japanese beetles when they started coming to my rose bushes last year. And a few mornings of sharp streams of water and ending the day that way. And, you know, they really only hung around for about a week. And then it was over. So part of it is just letting nature do what nature is going to do. If you have a pest, it's like a beacon to their predators. They're, the predators are going to come because they know that you've got that pest. And, and a lot of times they'll, they'll help you with it if you're just patient enough. You know, that's such a great example. I, I was dealing with an incredible number of aphids two summers ago in my sorghum uh, patch. And my initial reaction was like, oh, wow, I, I wonder if I need to spray, like, horticultural oil or something. And luckily, the universe sent me my dear friend, Lloyd Traven, owner of Peace Tree Farms, which is a, a USDA certified organic grower of herbs, edibles, and ornamentals. It's very rare to have an organic ornamental grower, a greenhouse operation. And I was explaining it to him, and he said, oh, my gosh, you know. I promise you the lady beetles are going to move in and they are going to feast on those aphids. So just give it a couple of days and see what happens. Well, not only did the lady beetles move in, the aphids going to the bathroom, which is called honeydew, which I think is a really sweet name. (laughs) The honeydew attracted 10 different varieties of flying insects in which they were feeding on the honeydew as it decomposed on the upper sides of the leaves. 
So there is this entire range of biological diversity happening, all because those aphids came in and took a 10-day snack on that sorghum crop. It had no influence whatsoever on the quality of the, of the sorghum sugar at the end of the season. But what it did do was increase the biological diversity within my home landscape. And it was such an incredible experience to see, and I was fortunate enough to have elementary schools coming on tours of my garden at that time. And every one of them was so fascinated to see docile wasps eating honeydew. I think I hope that it changed their perspective on the role wasps play in our, in our environment. I love that story. And again, it's just that whole patience that the seasoned gardener starts to kind of cultivate. You, you know, if you're impatient when you start gardening over the years, you are, you're, you become patient. You have to cultivate that patience because you learn that if you just sit back and let Mother Nature do her thing, oftentimes that's better than, than trying to take action and hurry things along. You really can't rush it. When you start gardening, you do have this level of impatience. And one of the reasons gardening becomes a mainstay hobby for people is the peace and tranquility that you learn to accept. And knowing that you're not in control of everything and that there are great little surprises that nature offers you, and that you learn that being patient gives you this much greater reward. Instant gratification is not all that it's chalked up to be. <laughs> it is not. And there are a lot of happy accidents that happen along the way as you're trying to figure out how to garden. And anyone who's read this book of yours has to smile at something you devised, and it's called The Foodie Fire Pit. And I love this. I, I told you in the in our pre-chat that I actually had to stop and reread this a couple of times because I'm like, oh my gosh, I just was totally enthralled with this idea. And I want to come up with one for my own fire pit. So tell this story. I think it's a gem. Well, this this really was the happiest accident. Um, you know, my husband and I had just gotten engaged and we, we giggled because, you know, the girls get all the presents. And I surprised him with a fire pit to be his engagement present. Wow. And I, you know, not no thought whatsoever had this 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 square pit built. And um, he had made me a live wall, a you know, living wall and I got to feed him things. And it just so happened that by accident that wall fit perfectly to cover that open pit. And I realized that all the pits are actually really ugly when all you have is that open hole and, you know, the unburnt stuff in the bottom of it. Yeah. And having this, this, this fire pit cover made the pit look so inviting whether we had a fire or not. And, you know, we always laugh because here in North Carolina, um, you don't do fires in the summer. It's way too hot. So okay. you kind of not use your fire pit area. But having this pit where we grow in the summer from seed and it grows up along with the nitrate basil it looks like flames so you can sit out there and have a faux fire and the joy of that is that you know it's an area that's in a circle you can have great conversations that isn't revolving around a table people will get more space you know between you and, and the people sitting next to you and um, I, I just think the fire paint is this 
beacon of welcoming that if it's planted right and you can surround yourself with the blueberries and strawberries and ground cover and pumpkin asparagus and you have this other reason to go out there whether you're going to roast marshmallows or not. And I think, you know, today in the suburbs, people spend a lot of money to develop a fire pit that they might only use two or three times a year. And I want to see them use that as a resource, you know, every day when they come home and, and just to recount, you know, how their day was. And, and end up being a space that you're sending your kids out to to go harvest salad stuff. So, I, you know, I think that if you can be creative and in the landscape that you already have and figure a way to incorporate food, it just has value in so many different ways. It does. And you got so lucky because that square palette that you had used for this living wall, like, fit perfectly. It looked like it was designed for your square fire pit. I couldn't believe it. It was the happiest accident. We, we giggled about it because we said we should contact the manufacturer and offer this design as an as a add-on to the fire pits that they sell. <laughs> I love it. I have a round fire pit and ours is sunken. So it's got just a simple ring. It's it's a very simple little fire pit. But often I worry about the kids accidentally, you know, because they're running around. I don't want them to trip or fall into it accidentally. I suppose it's just, you know, me being a mother and worrying about it. But even when I was doing my garden tour last year, I was concerned about it. And so I searched online for an oak table, some just old oak table somebody wanted to get rid of. And then I bought it and removed the legs and put the oak tabletop over the fire pit because I just wanted to make sure no one was going to accidentally step in it or get hurt by it. But I love this idea so much more that you're actually going to use the top and cover it with something growing. I really like that idea. I thought it was great. And I'll say, I'll send you a picture. It's full of kale and lettuce right now, and it's absolutely beautiful. So, you know, I like to sit out there in the middle of the day when I'm home on these few days that I get to be at home, and and it makes me appreciate that space so much more, seeing that cover. I love it. I, I just thought it was a great idea. There's a lot of wonderful gems in your book, and this was one of the standouts for me. I mean, I could do a top 10 list, but this is definitely on the list for me. And another lovely feature that's very attainable for folks would be this property screen meadow that you share on page 123. And, you know, earlier in this interview, you were talking about using grains as screening. And I now am going to incorporate that when people ask me, what can I use for a fast growing screen? In fact, I even have this one area of my property, I have a neighbor that sets her blue recycle bin out on the side of her garage. So she's using the the side access of her garage and she'll just set the recycle bin there. And I know why she's doing it. The garages are small. And if you have kids in multiple vehicles, sometimes the last thing you have room for is your garbage cans and your recycle bins. So she's setting it out on the side so that uh, she has a space for her recycling. But I'd love to have some type of screen so that I don't have to see it. And these these screens, this meadow screen that you give the example of is super tall. I mean, they look to be about eight, nine feet tall. 
So I'm so curious how you attempted this look. You you share your own experience coming up with this because you'd, you'd tried it with ornamentals, but then you found an alternative that was cheaper and worked much better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this was a, a bed that was originally all ornamental grass, and I wanted to mimic what we have going along the North Carolina highways with this beautiful textural experience of, of these native grasses. And unfortunately, I have a high water table here, and they all die. And Rosalind Creasy, you know, my mentor and friend and inspiration for really looking at the landscape and, and figuring out how to incorporate food, said to me, well, if you want the look of an ornamental grass, grow grain. And you're just growing it from seed directly sown in the ground. You're not having to transplant. You're not really having to irrigate. And these wonderful summer active grains like cane sorghum and sesame and sunflowers are all going to grow abundantly, you know, six, eight, 12 feet tall and provide that screen so that you don't have to see your neighbor's garbage cans or, you know, you don't have to see where your neighbors are parking their utility vehicles. And at the end of the season, you can use the grains. In this case, we, we use the cane sorghum and press out the cane syrup, and that's what I use to uh, sweeten my candied peppers in the fall. But the seeds are great as bird seed for the for the wintertime. So even if you're not interested in growing cane sorghum as a sugar source, you can use it and make your own bird seed fit, which I think is a really great way to be able to stay engaged and, and use your crop through all. Yeah, that's a great book. Uh, they're, they're positively beautiful. Unlike corn, and I do grow a lot of corn, but when corn sets its ears and the dog that you're summer hidden, it tends to go brown and it looks kind of shabby. And that may not necessarily meet the aesthetic requirements of your homeowner's association. But sorghum or millet, on the other hand, stay green until you have frost. So they have a much longer viability in the landscape and they grow abundantly. I can't say enough positive things about adding sorghum, millet, sunflowers, and sesame. Uh, to any landscape that you've ever had. Sesame is a very undervalued crop. Uh, it looks like digitalis, or foxglove. Okay. And sesame will grow five to six foot tall. They have beautiful white flowers, big soft white flowers. And when it goes to seed, you just cut those seeds, turn them upside down into a brown bag, and the sesame seeds will fall out. And that's exactly what it is. It's sesame seeds, just like you would put on bread. Okay, that's awesome. That's an, that's an exciting option as well, just as much as the rice. Well, you know, what's fun about like sesame or rice for me? These were both historically important crops that are basically lost in today's knowledge base. So I was introduced to sesame when I was taking a tour of Monticello. And I asked, what is this beautiful thing that looks like a foxglove that's still blooming in August? And there it was, sesame. You know, and, I, and I'm so grateful for these heritage gardens that represent the diversity of the early settlers who were truly having to grow everything they consumed. There's so much to be learned at a historic site about the agricultural methods that they used 
that can now be applied to today's landscape. I agree. Well, at the end of your book, you acknowledge all the people that have helped you along your horticultural journey. And you mentioned that your husband and you broke ground at your current house back in 2011. And you recalled declaring, the work has just begun. And I was laughing because I would have said something like that and my husband would have run back into the house because he's not a gardener. But I'm so curious, do you and your husband work together in your landscape? We do. And I am so grateful to have David as my partner uh, in that he uh, he really enjoys mowing and edging and he's a, a good a good sport about putting out mulch and, and helping me unload trailers of compost, which I have two yards of compost waiting for me today. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I told him the story of my parents redoing their landscape when I was in college. And a group of my friends came up and we helped them over spring break. And they said very... Uh, <laughs> very unknowingly, oh, the work is done. And we all looked at each other and we we knew enough at this stage to say, <laughs> are you kidding? You've just started. Your landscape is brand new. You're never going to not be in here now. And so that's always been my mantra when a new garden goes in, that the work has just begun and that you can turn that four-letter word work into play. And um, it's a whole lot more fun that way. I love that. I love that. Well, you've also mentioned, and I've heard you talk about this in other interviews, that your passion for growing plants was truly realized in the summer of 1999 when you worked as an intern for Jeff Mast as the, he's the manager of Heartland Growers. Early experiences in horticulture can really leave a favorable impression. What was it about this experience that ignited your passion for horticulture? Oh, it was, it really truly was life-changing. Heartland Growers is part of the Van Wingerden family of greenhouses that supply massive quantities of annuals to box stores, including Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's, also, you know, local independent garden centers and, and landscape designers. And when I arrived, it was the middle of the spring season, and it was 30 consecutive acres under glass of every color in the rainbow that you could imagine. And it was the most surreal experience to be in there and to see how these plants started from seeds in their propagation area and then went out to these ranges where only eight or nine people were managing them to go out and, and just carpet the, the whole central Midwestern area with all of the colorful annuals that you would put in. And I would visit my plants at the local stores in the Indianapolis area, and I felt such a level of pride knowing that I grew those and that they were going into thousands of different people's landscapes. And it was just an experience where they allowed me as a 19-year-old who didn't have a lot of experience to learn all of the different facets on how to grow a plant to its highest level of quality. 
so they gave me the opportunity to work directly with the growers and they gave me responsibility. So I took care of 10 million chrysanthemums and I was very possessive of those moms. <laughs> I wanted to make sure that I grew them to a place where they would be starting to flower before Labor Day so that, that people would start buying them early in the season and, and really just got to see the biology of growing plants happens literally every day in front of me in, in, in a controlled environment that was really unlike anything I had ever experienced. And I'm so grateful that they hired me and gave me that responsibility and allowed me to stay working there all through college. So from that time after my sophomore year, I worked on weekends at Heartland Growers all the way through my, my college experience. And it gave me a level of pride and satisfaction that uh, a classroom just couldn't really provide for me. Hmm. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about I when I started working in human resources at one point in my career, I went to work for a PepsiCo organization. I was working for Pizza Hut. And once I started working there, aside from the fact that I love pizza, it was the fact that they had such wonderful systems and processes in place. And I just loved it. Everything was planned out to the nines. And there were so many smart people that I was working with. It was really, a, truly a pleasure. So in addition to the autonomy, it was how everything was set up. There was mastery in everything. Is that similar to what this experience was for you, that they had spent literally decades refining how they were going to grow and all those systems were in place? It, exactly. And, and, you know, this was obviously at a time where technology was really just starting to get embraced by the growers. And I would say now those greenhouses are far more sophisticated than what I had been growing in. But not only seeing the systems in place, but seeing how they were able to take advantage and, and pivot and, and change as technology uh, became more available. And, uh, you know, I, I like innovation and I like to work with people who who see the future as being bright and that innovation is a big part of that. Heartland was an example of a greenhouse that wasn't going to get stuck in the rut of what they've always done. And so they were always very open to hearing suggestions and, and really empowering their employees so that everyone had the best possible experience. And at the end of the day, their plants were of highest quality that could be grown. Yeah, there's no substitute for mastery. When you're when you're learning at the feet of someone, you want to have the very best passionate expert that you can get your hands on. So that was such a rare, I mean, probably just a, a stroke of luck, right? How did you stumble in that? You were 19 years old for crying out loud. You know, I'm lucky in that I was outgoing and I asked my advisor who was a world-renowned floriculturalist very not intimidating and that he was very, very kind, but you know, the kind of person that not many of my classmates would go up to. And I just said, I, I need a job or I don't know if I'm going to be able to stay focused on this curriculum because these classes just aren't necessarily holding my attention. And I, I need to do something to get to understand what I'm working towards with this degree. And he sent me to Heartland and I, I did my interview and, and I was just so 
fortunate that they selected me because it truly did change my my entire motivation and what I wanted to achieve in this industry. So I, I, I look back on that summer and it was truly that moment that everything changed. I hope that every student of any curriculum gets to have a moment like that that you can look back on and, and then encourage others to to look for that and, and have that experience themselves. Hmm. It reminds me a little bit of the story I had just interviewed Trevor Johnson with the Bloomfield uh, Detroit Hospital. He's the uh, resident farmer there and he takes care of the greenhouse. But he had a similar wonderful experience early on with a strong mentor and it made all the difference for him in horticulture. We need more opportunities and more mentors like that. And I, I loved the practical application that you mentioned that, you know, for people who are in horticulture classes right now that are maybe not having the lights turn on for them and they're just not feeling that passion, go out and get some field experience. That could be just the ticket. There is a satisfaction in a a hard day's work growing plants, knowing you're making the world a better place. And that can't always be uh, explained in a textbook, you know? And, and, And I think that that is sort of what sums up why people choose horticulture as a profession because we are making the world a better place one plant at a time. Love that. Well, on the back of your book is this lovely sentiment, and it really stood out to me, and it says, Once upon a time, veggie gardens lived in the backyard, isolated from the rest of the landscape. What's the fairy tale ending for the foodscape in this story? Oh, the fairy tale ending is that everywhere in your sight line, you'll see something you can eat. Um, you know, from your hanging baskets to the space adjacent to your foundation landscape along your sidewalk, anywhere that's convenient, you know, you'll, you'll see an opportunity to grow something that you might be able to bring into your kitchen and, and make it so that your family has access to fresh, organic, local produce. I would love to see the suburbs one day not be looked at as this wasteland that millennials don't want to move into, but rather being a, an incredible resource for organic produce. And I think that we have 180 million acres of suburbia that's just waiting to be fully utilized. And my hope is that in generations to come, that will actually resonate and, and truly be the case. And you won't hire a mobile and go company to come in and, and tend your lawn, you know, then you will hire a trained horticulturist to make your life and lifestyle better. Perfect. Perfect. Well, that is a great spot to end our conversation today, Bree. I can't thank you enough for being on the show. If people are interested in finding out more, you're going to be crisscrossing the country You're all over the place this year talking about the Foodscape Revolution. If they know they're going to see you, if they know you're coming to their area, they can certainly buy their book at any one of your events. But in the meantime, they can get your book on Amazon or any bookseller anywhere, basically, right? They can. And if you'd like a signed copy, you can order from my website, which is breegrows.com. Awesome. And you also have a Facebook page as well. Yes. And that is also Bree Grows. And you'll find daily tips on, on 
tricks to incorporate food and strategies to deal with your harvest once you bring them into your kitchen. I typically um, offer four or five different photographs a day through the Brie Grows on Facebook. Love it. All right. Well, it's something new to follow, and uh, I'm sure people will give it a look. There are a lot of great ideas in your book, and I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and talking to us about it in depth. It was a real pleasure to read, and I encourage everyone listening to go out and get a copy. There's so many great ideas and lovely, lovely resources. You put a lot of thought into it, so it's a great, great book. It's a great reference book to have for all gardeners. Thank you so much, Bree. Thank you so much for your generosity and your time and support and interest. It, it's a true pleasure to get to share this obsession with anyone who's interested. So thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you again. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank Bree Arthur for being my guest. That was just spectacular. I learned so very much, and I'm sure you did too. I want to thank my team at Podfly Productions, David Myers, my fantastic editor, Ayn Kadena, my copywriter, and my project manager, David Gregerson. I also want to thank the ladies who make up my listener advisory board, Beth Engel, Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine, Amy Von Atchen, Patricia Chandler Newport. Patricia is the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan, Deb Gibson, and Peggy Ann Montgomery. She's the brand manager at American Beauty's Native Plants. She was featured as a guest back in episode 553. And we all owe Peggy Ann a debt of gratitude because she connected me with Brie Arthur. And that's how we ended up with this spectacular show today. Just a reminder that I'll have all the generous information that Brie shared on the show today in the show notes for today's episode over on my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. Just click on podcast in the menu and today's episode will pop right up. And while you're there, click on the link for the Facebook group and then just click to join. I'd love to meet you in the still growing podcast group. And don't forget, you have to click to join if you want to be eligible to win a copy of Brie Arthur's Foodscape Revolution. Well, you guys, I really am heading in to rotator cuff surgery tomorrow. In fact, I'm producing this show a little bit ahead of time. So by the time this show airs, I should be a little over a week out from my surgery. And I'm hoping that at the two-week mark, I'll be able to resume podcasting. But if not, stick with me. I'll be back as soon as I can. Send good thoughts of healing my way. I'll take all of them. And in the meantime, while you're waiting for a new episode, go ahead and check out the back catalog. There's plenty of great episodes for you to go back and listen to. And the great thing about gardening is the content is evergreen. So with any luck, I'll be back with you shortly. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.